Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today my guest is fellow Italian, first time I'm actually interviewing an Italian, Silvia Truini. Silvia is a scholar, and uh, she's uh, at the crossroad of ethnography and archaeology. She wrote a PhD at the University of Exeter, The Handmaiden Settler Colonialism which is an ethnographic study at the intersection between archaeology and Zionist settler colonialism, looking at how this ideology dominates Silwan in East Jerusalem. Silvia, welcome. Hi, Roberto, welcome. Thank you. Silvia, the first question that I ask all of my guests, very simple, and is very personal. What is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city? My relationship with Jerusalem is actually very deep and very complicated. I remember leaving it feeling like this sort of sense of relief, but then as soon as I realized that I left it, missing it a lot, and which I found out talking to a lot of people, something that happens to very many people, not just me. So I was not the only one to feel this kind of like relief, but at instant nostalgia. My personal Jerusalem is, I don't know, I think my hiding spots, because ethnography is a very in demanding job. It demands you that once that you spend a lot of time with people and a lot of time in close proximity with all sorts of people, not necessarily people you, you would choose as your companions every day. And it's very straining. It's emotionally very draining. So I would have my hiding spots. So I would just go there and sit and observe other things rather than work connected things. So I would say that I know my hiding spots on the rooftops of the market. 
and my hiding spots on the walls and my tiny hiding spots like in a tiny courtyard in Sheikh Jarrah. I have no idea if it still exists and it was next to where I used to live. Uh, I had my kind of nooks that I really, really loved or some small, uh, there is this place, which is not a cafe. It's just one of those small bastards, those small kind of like, they, they just have the cart with make coffee and tea on it. And it has the stools in an alleyway that leads to a dead end. And I used to go there. It's kind of like, it's very close to the, to the market in the old city, but it's quite secluded. So I would just be a regular. I would go there every, pretty much every day or every other day. And I would just sit there and have my coffee and people would know me and would just like, give me my coffee, not talk to me. I would not talk to them. And uh, they, they would just know that I would be the girl who would go and sit there and have coffee <laughs> because I needed that. So yeah, that, that's a bit of my, my own Jerusalem. I think like those, those quiet moments in which I could just be in a way there, not doing something, but being there with other, without other demands. Yeah, that, that I guess was my Jerusalem. I think this is fascinating because we tend to go to Jerusalem and do things, right? Uh, visiting or touching, uh, sensing. Uh, I, I guess it's more complicated to be, uh, which is something that probably personally I should try to experience. I never did it. Uh, Sylvia, I want to ask something about your work because it sounds fascinating. So your work is at the intersection of ethnography and archaeology. You're both an ethnographer, but also you're training as archaeologist. Can you yeah. tell us about your work? I mean, your PhD is based on this idea of looking at what's going on in Silwan. Can you summarize it for us? Well, I'd like to start from how I started, like how I got there. And uh, first of all, I got to Silwan by chance. And it was very young. I was doing my master's degree and... Uh, I was in a kind of like weird master's degree at the University of Bologna that demanded me that I did some sort of like research on the field. And I had zero clue of what to do. And randomly, very randomly, I saw a documentary on Al Jazeera that had a part about Silwan. And I was like, wow, I'm an archaeologist. I'm doing politics right now. So that looks perfect. So I just like I parachuted myself there. I had no clue. And so just like, let's go and see. So I started working on the topic there and delving into all the literature. And I realized that there's so much literature over there. But the literature about Silwan is dominated by a sort of a consensus, like people, like the authors bicker about minor differences in interpretation, like who's right, who's wrong. Uh, do the settlers uh, enforce a fake narrative, like a narrative based on factoids or bended facts? Or... Uh, should we restore facts? What should we do? Like, it, they're bickering on that. And my, my baseline question was, okay, but if they're using archaeology so much in Silwan and all over the history of the state of Israel and the Zionism itself, archaeology has always been used as a prime method of building connection with the land, nation building, but also dispossession of Palestinians. My question was, if archaeology is such a good instrument, what makes it such a good instrument? Like why archaeology? Why not any other thing? Why not engineering? And so what makes archaeology so special? What is the contribution of archaeology to all of this? Being a part of, you know, like archaeological academia, we tend not to be trained 
when we are archaeologists to the political side of it. We tend to overlook it almost completely. And it has only recently started to be integrated a bit into archaeology courses, I guess, or archaeology majors. But in my day, when I was studying archaeology, it was like the beginning of the 2000s, uh, I received zero training in this. I was zero stimulated on anything vaguely political. I, it had to be shown, in, like seriously shoved into my face. Um, through very kind of like disturbing sometimes episodes on Italian excavations. And that's what in a way made me think that there's more to archaeology than archaeologists themselves like to think. And I decided to explore this in Silwan a bit because it's, um, it's a sort of a microcosm. Everything is like the scale is so small, but it's so intense that everything comes out amplified out of it. And uh, it's not like the pace of colonization, the pace of dispossession, the pace of excavation is extremely high, like compared to any other environment is crazy high. So there is this sort of like uh, speed and intensity that puts Silvan really under limelight. So I decided to focus on that case. And eventually when I first got there, I realized I got stuck because I was still very much thinking into the box. So I was very much thinking, you know, like, okay, politics exploits archaeology. And the idea that actually archaeology has some very substantial active contributions to make, regardless of who practices it, like, regardless of the best intention, or that's the way archaeology works came from the people of Silwan. I was doing ethnography, as you said, so which means that my work was mainly engaging with people who are not professionals, who are average residents of the neighborhood that is being obviously under the impact of archaeological excavation. The neighborhood is called Wadi Helwe. And partly Bustan, because Bustan is under the threat of the expansion of the archaeological park. But mainly my work was with Wadi Helwe. And the thing is, those people have an understanding of archaeology that we can classify as outside and below like those are people who are completely excluded from the working of archaeology they don't also they don't mean to participate in it because they feel that they feel it is this sort of alien force or antagonistic force because they are at the receiving end of a lot of violence that is practiced in the name of archaeology or through archaeology itself through very innocent methodologies of archaeology, like excavation per se, or protection of uh, the site per se, like all the fencing and all the cameras. Uh, those people are just there at the receiving and forcibly passive end of this violence. So their opinion was radically different from anything I could think of. And I really had to learn from them. It was a learning experience. Many of the things that they said did not make sense into the available frameworks made available by literature, because obviously literature thinks from top up, like the top down, from academia down. It is academia interpreting what's happening. And instead, I really wanted to see what happened when people interpret academia, <laughs> whatever academia has to say. So that basically was most of my work, sitting with people and listening to whatever complaint they had about the situation in general. So I. I heard a lot of things, and among them were complaints about archaeology itself, on which I focused eventually for my work. And this is how my PhD came about, is mostly about archaeology as what, what archaeology contributes in terms of colonial violence, and in terms of methodologies, and in terms of assumptions, things that as archaeologists we 
like to think as neutral. We like to think as value neutral, and it depends on how you do them. It depends on what intentions you have. It depends on uh, who you integrate into your work, who you integrate into your decision making. But obviously, the conditions on the ground in Silwan do not allow the integration of the people of Silwan to the decision making because nobody's interested in this. And the, the site is ruled like is administered by this settler NGO who has zero interest in the existence of the Palestinian population and instead is trying to force them out one way or the other. Then obviously the settlers tend to spun excavations and over time, like in the beginning, let's say in the 90s and early 2000, yes, archaeology, like the formal formal official archaeology, the IAA, the Israeli Antiquity Authority, would not participate in those excavations. They would say, okay, those are biased and the methodology is not good. They are just excavating for the sake of excavating and basically digging holes to prove a point. And they took a critical stance. But progressively, the IAA got kind of like closer and closer and closer to the settlers until recently, the most recent excavations are made in cooperation with the IAA. So the people who are actually excavating are excavating with top standard methodology. They are doing good methods, excavation. Uh, they are the beacons of secular archeology span working there on a settler site paid by the settlers. And the results are not any different. For the Palestinian people of Siwan, they feel the same. They feel the same with an excavation run in a poorly methodological way and by uh, some sort of like settler extremist scholar than they feel with an excavation done with top-notch methodology by a very respected secular scholar. For them, it's all the same. Like on the receiving end, it feels the same. So this is basically a bit kind of like my, it felt just like a bit of a bitter divorce with archeology span eventually. I don't know, <laughs> I felt very bitter and very disillusioned from by something that I don't know I grew up with anyway. <laughs> I guess the problem is that we all grew up with the idea that archaeology is some sort of a Indiana Jones kind of adventure. We go, we dig, and we find something cool. Uh, but the reality is rather different. And I wanted to pick up on this because we're both Italians. We grew up with the idea that wherever you dig, you're going to find something, which is partly true. I mean, in Italy, more or less, you you, you can dig uh, around the countryside or obviously when they do uh, roadworks or major works in cities, there's always something popping up, whether it's medieval, where it's uh, uh, Roman, or in some parts of Italy might be even uh, belonging to other civilizations, whether it be Etruscan and so forth. But there is no politics connected. Actually, the politics sometimes is to close it up quickly because it might be a, a problem, right? It might stop the works. You need mm -hmm. to investigate further. So there is no sense of... Uh, uh, connecting politics to, to that. But you're talking about obviously different case studies where in C1, archaeology is political and it has different purposes other than exploring the history of the neighborhood itself. And I've been fascinated by your description of the fact that people are disconnected. They don't see the purpose uh, of, of these archaeological excavations. But I want to keep it to you and your work. So I wondered, uh, and I must admit, I don't know much about it. Is there anything under seal one that is worth excavating? Are you aware of any potential digging that might change our perception of knowledge of history of Jerusalem? Well, okay. Uh, generally, uh, exactly. When you said like a kind of like the Indiana Jones complex, the idea that 
you're going to excavate and find the piece of stone or the piece of pottery that's going to change our understanding of history forever. It's part of the Indiana Jones complex. And uh, I, I like, honestly, archaeology itself is much more prosaic than that. It's mostly like layers of of dirt cutting into layers of dirt. And you just like, if you're lucky, you find some trinkets, but like the find, like the huge find is really, really rare, honestly. Like on my personal like, years of experience as a field archaeologist, it's really, really rare. Well, under Silwan, yes, in, it's incontrovertible that Silwan grew on a tal, which is a, which is a hill that was partially natural, but uh, eventually grew like archaeologically, which means that you have debris of older construction being kind of like left there and then being covered with dirt and then building more not sort of like, let's say, cultivated areas or natural green areas, things that look natural, but the, actually the hill is partially natural and then there is an uh, artificial accumulation. And this artificial accumulation is actually very ancient. Like uh, it's the most ancient nucleus of Jerusalem. The first, uh, the first inhabited caves of Jerusalem are there. And there are things that date back to the Bronze Age. They do not get under the spotlight because obviously the way in which the site is presented by the settler group lays all the attention onto the Iron Age period, which is the what they called in biblical classification first temple period or second temple period. Most of uh, which is like what in archaeology normally we would call the Iron Age period and the Roman era. Those are the things that actually are there more monumental to see, even uh, like as a tourist, you go there and you see some kind of like piling stones piled up. And those are Iron Age remains. And actually, it was the ancient nucleus of Jerusalem. It was the first nucleus of the city. So if, really, like, there is something archaeological there. Uh, then what is this importance? And why people's lives and livelihood should be sacrificed for the sake of excavating it? That's debatable. Because that's always the, that is the, that is the problem with archaeology. All archaeological excavations, like in Italy, when you mentioned, you said, that we don't feel the political side of it because we perceive it's not political. That's a perception because the same issues I found in Silwan, I met for the first time in 2005 in Sardinia. People were extremely upset with us as archeologists coming from the continent and not from the, not from the deep island because I was in this kind of like super small village in the middle of the mountain. And they seriously had issues with us coming and stealing something that's part of their heritage something we don't understand and they have a meaningful relationship with that we don't understand and we come to disrupt for the sake of some science that then will steal those artifacts and steal that history and put it away in a museum somewhere else. So basically I found the same issues, like the same complaints in, in Sardinia, in Silwan. I found it in a very small uh, excavation in Northern Italy, like a guy was excavating in his field and had very similar complaints, which means that we're not used to this political side and always the compromise that needs to be made and the decision-making of whether to excavate or not, or how, how to excavate, how to explore the archeology span and the underground is always how to balance it with lives and livelihoods of people. Like does this justifying uprooting the community? Does this justify changing the landscape forever? Does this justify it? And in that sense, in that respect, I believe that with the current technologies available, uh, there's very little that can justify 
something like that. Currently, there are all sorts of technologies of remote sensing that are becoming more and more accurate and theoretically like in computer modeling. So there are technical and technological means that would allow to know the underground without physically accessing it. The, the political choice of uprooting a community or excavating under the houses to the point that those houses collapse uh, and really endangering the community and the lives and livelihood of people, disorienting them by changing the landscape making their life, daily life a nightmare because you change the paths that they used to make between a house and, a ha and another because you put a fence, you say, look, it's an, it's an archeological area, we close it. Those are political choices. They are not choices dictated by the relevance of the fines. Those are always political choices. Like not even if it were the great pyramid of Giza, you would just like go and say, okay, let's approve them all immediately. It's always a political choice. I want to ask you something, and I know that is not necessarily your area of expertise, but um, uh, there is this major excavation in Jerusalem, Ir David, or the city of David. So essentially, it's very close to Silwan. It's Silwan. It's Silwan. It I mean, it's, a, uh, it's sort of a, a, the crossroad between the old city of Jerusalem and uh, the valley down to Silwan. Can I ask you your, your personal feelings about it? I mean, for many, it's just the idea of excavating what might have been the old city of Jerusalem. Obviously, as you mentioned, there are also groups that are looking at that as a way of weaponizing uh, archaeology in order to prove claims. What does Silvia Truini think about it? I'm really curious about this particular area. Okay, I think that Ir David as an archaeological park is a masterpiece of public archaeology is a masterpiece of uh, marketing of an idea of a future. Like the settlers are not selling an idea of the past. The settlers in Erdavid are communicating an idea of a future, are telling, are trying to convince the public who goes there that is extremely already select, like it's already selected at the roots. Like the people who would go and visit Erdavid on the majority are Christian Zionist groups from America and uh, soldiers, they do the IDF tours there now. Uh, they used to be on Masada, now a lot of them go to Ir David. And then uh, a lot of other kind of like different kind of Zionist groups from Israel and Israeli visitors. Basically, their narrative is always very political and they are communicating something that they wish was there. It's not so much a narration of the past because past is like, you know, it, the past is a very volatile thing. So having archeological remains, putting them on display, giving people the chance of walking on them, even in some areas you can walk on the ruins, which is absolutely crazy archeologically speaking, but yes, they can. Uh, this promise of touching the past is something that is very powerful. It gives substance to something that is the dimension we don't feel. It's the only dimension that makes us. We can't make, we can't control, and we can't feel. Uh, so, in a way, it has a very powerful appeal, but it communicates a wishful thinking of how they wish things would be, not how they wish things were. Because the, the archaeological reality is much more complex than what they convey, but selecting it is not something that applies to the past. And I think it's seriously a masterpiece of marketing and archaeological communications. If you study it from the point of view of marketing, it makes so much more sense than it does from the point of view of narratives they're actually selling an idea. And I think it's quite indicative. And it's, it's a very curious coincidence, honestly, that until 
2016, uh, I was studying uh, Irdabid and I was going for my master's research and the narrative was obsessively repeating that that was the capital of Israel. That was the United Capital of United Israel. This suddenly stopped and I went there in August 2016 and I did this field visit and I realized there's something weird and different. They stopped talking about the capital of Jerusalem. They started to insist on the third temple, on the temple, temple, temple worship, like connecting that, that archaeological area to the temple worship, that worship on the Jewish temple, first temple, specially, second temple, marginally. And uh, they started to invest in tunnels that will lead up to the Haram al-Sharif, and actually the tunnel project is almost complete. You can go into the Davidson Center, the tunnels that connected with the uh, Western World Heritage Foundation were ready by the end of 2019. Uh, so uh, in a way, like they shifted all their narratives towards this idea of temple. And the thing that I found really surprising and made me think that they're really more into selling futures than telling pasts is the fact that they stopped talking about the capital and a few months later, Donald Trump, who is heavily influenced by the Christian Zionist lobbies, who are the affectionate clients and general public, declared that Jerusalem the capital of Israel. It felt like a mission accomplished. It's just like, let's move on to the next, to the next desirable thing. Let's move on to lobby for the next desirable thing. And they started to talk into terms of Jewish right to worship on the temple and tradition of worshiping, like making all the history of ancient Jerusalem about this connection with the temple, which honestly is spells bad, honestly, for, for, for the Haram al-Sharif. Uh, it means that they are actively working on that lobbying front for that, and they are very strong at lobbying. Archaeologically speaking, well, it's been a kind of like consolidated evidence, the fact that that is the ancient nucleus of Jerusalem. And there is really very little to disprove there. The controversy can be about the palace of King David, which is this idea that settlers, the loud settlers like to obviously show because they need something big, they need some sort of boom news. Otherwise it's just, it's just a kind of like an, it's an even an underwhelming archeological experience if someone has, had, I don't know, a Pompeii experience is absolutely underwhelming. Uh, that, that can be debatable, like what is that structure? When does it date from? Like, is it a Byzantine structure, like some say? Is it really a Bronze Age structure? Is it an Iron Age structure? Where does it sit? Those are the kind of controversies, but the idea that there is something there, like that that is the ancient nucleus of Jerusalem, I think it's beyond disproving. Obviously, yes, the issue is, like the issue is with this kind of like Disney-fied archaeological park and all the apparatuses that come with it, the surveillance, the fencing, the alteration of landscape, the alteration of meanings, that that is the controversy, like what the archaeological park does, what is its function, what it wants. And in my opinion, it's like this idea of uh, using archaeology to manipulate the future deserves a bit more attention from the archaeological community in general. We like to think that our work concerns the past. And instead I was like, wait, this looks so much future oriented that it actually makes more sense. And I wish that generally archeologists would take the futures more seriously. Yeah. <laughs> that, that said. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We are going to take a short break. Thank you for listening. And remember to join our page, Twitter, and Instagram account. If you have a story about Jerusalem that you want to share, or someone that you want me to interview, please get in touch. Enjoy the rest of the show. I'm fascinated by your statement that uh, archaeology, in this case, is looking at the future rather than the past. And uh, I must admit that I never thought in these terms, and uh, it really kicked me. I felt a kick in my butt, to be honest, because I, I couldn't connect these dots. But, and as we were talking about the question of the tunnels, uh, and obviously also the Trump administration recognizing Jerusalem as the United Capital of Israel, then all of these dots were connected. And uh, now I, I can see the, this connection. I wanted to ask you something a, a bit technical, uh, since you're an archaeologist, but also an ethnographer. Uh, you mentioned earlier the question of excavations and uh, the fact that there are there used to be sort of amateurs involved, but slowly uh, and relentlessly more professionals engaged, uh, you know, with them, and so they formed a sort of an unicum, like a community excavating. How do you see excavations in Jerusalem? Uh, is there a future for professional? Uncommitted, meaning that non-political excavations, or they are inevitably, given the context, moving towards excavating for the sake of proving claims. Uh, I'm going to say something that's yeah, a bit unpopular, but I am part of the kind of like radical fringe that believes that everything is political, not because of Jerusalem is political, but everything everywhere is political. It's just like how evident, how blatant it is. How can we perceive it? That's all the, that, that's the question. And uh, I believe that uh, in our, like archaeology, because of its nature, I think like sadly, because of the nature of archaeology and how d- 
his discipline is. The discipline uh, is uh, something that relies on governative permits. You need a permit to excavate. So eventually the government or whomever is in charge of releasing permits and its politics will decide if you will excavate or not. If your project fits their vision or not, if your project will get funding or not, will get approval, permit or not. And that's already a political watershed for any archaeological project. So uh, even if we were to talk about uh, any kind of social justice committed archaeology, like there are a lot of examples, like experiments that are being done all over the world with indigenous communities, with um, Native American communities, I'm thinking of indigenous archaeologies. Uh, those are very interesting actions and experiments that are trying to push the boundaries of archaeology, but eventually there is always this kind of like the structure of archaeology is um, very permit dependent and very government dependent. So eventually I see that those kind of projects in Jerusalem are not very optimistic about their um, about their potential for change, let's say, like potential for bringing about positive change, like social justice informed change, because eventually if a project can really be disruptive of the colonial order in Jerusalem, I doubt that it will get, ever get an approval. Those who get an approval are usually projects that scratch the surface. It's not like it's not like launching an inquiry or something, some sort of independent inquiry. You don't need a permit to go and ask people things, but you need a permit to excavate. So archaeology by nature is very conditioned by politics from the very beginning, regardless of who practices it and what are their intention, what are their orientation. So personally, I believe that in, our, in Jerusalem, but all over Palestine, every archaeological excavation is tendentially like approved on a political basis or not approved on political basis. Secondarily, every stone you turn is political. It's extremely political. And it depends on where you want to stand, like what kind of work you want to do. If you think you can do something that is really social justice informed, it's really transformative. And in what way do you want to transform reality, transform present and futures and narrations of the past according to your work? But obviously, yeah, I'm, I'm not very optimistic because obviously my PhD was about the nature of archaeology and how archaeology is regardless of the setting and what it contributes to the setting. And that's kind of like the, the bureaucratization of archaeology, the fact that you need permits, the fact that you need approval from above uh, curbs, curbs radically transformative things if they are caught in advance. Like if they, if they reach the lines, it's just like, no, that's, that's not going to occur. And, and in I essence, guess this bureaucratization leads uh, to the choice who, who's going to dig or not in Jerusalem, because essentially when you ask a permit, the authorities are basically saying, yes, you can dig, no, you cannot, depending on your nationality, perhaps your religious affiliations, uh, perhaps also about the motivations of the uh, institutional affiliation. So I guess there's some sort of a, a discrimination towards uh, archaeology in a sense. Let's say that, uh, honestly, the Israeli Antiquities Authority is, um, that is the body that releases the permits, uh, generally, obviously privileges uh, like members of the association, 
people who have solid solid formation like they try not to issue permits to amateurs even though sometimes they do because the problem is always like this is another problem of contemporary archaeology under heavy capitalism uh, when state funding declined it opened a massive gap just like how do we fund this work now like state is not funding this who is going to pay for it and then an array of actors stepped in and decided to, to fund things that fit their agenda, obviously, like necessarily someone finds something, funds something that it's interested in. Which means that sometimes the, in the beginning, especially in the beginning of this cooperation between the IAEA and sector groups generally, uh, they were not very inclined to release excavation permits to secular scholars, but eventually, there was no other way of doing a specific kind of research or research in a specific place because none other than those people would be funded for research. So there was a compromise made in the name of money. And Professor Rafael Greenberg talks a lot about it, uh, those compromises made in the name for the sake of funding. And eventually, uh, the thing that has surprised a lot of archaeologists, especially those kind of like, let's say, more uh, liberal leaning archaeologists in Israel. Uh, was this rapprochement between the settlers and the IAA, which was not based on money, which was sort of like, uh, I honestly like there is not any piece of research that I know at least that actually articulates why there was this rapprochement, like brings maybe some testimonies from the heads of the IAA, like those who ran this rapprochement between the IAA and the settlers. Uh, like why did they choose to work together but I can assume that at some point in front of all of that criticism I believe that the IAA as a professional body desired to step in and say okay we're trying to restore some credibility to archaeology here because here we're losing credibility because excavations are running permits are being issued which means that things are happening anyway it's it's best if we try at least to excavate decently and I guess that's the kind of calculation. I don't believe that, honestly, like every single individual in the IAA has a settler colonizing agenda or a genocidal agenda or an ethnic cleansing agenda. Some, it's a, it's a very individual position eventually, it's personal politics, and not everybody does have this sort of very aggressive agendas. But, uh, you know, generally, I believe that there are people with generally good intentions who believe that archaeology can be neutral, can be done properly, objectively, and they're trying to do it. The problem that I found out with my work is that at the receiving end, it doesn't matter. So the big questions that I believe that anyone who has some kind of ethical concerns with their archeological work, and anyone who excavates in Jerusalem, I believe needs to ask themselves is basically, is it worth it? If it's, if it's always bad for Palestinians, is it worth it? Yeah, I guess that would be a very good question also, looking at the Palestinian community. I have a couple more questions about archaeology before moving to ethnography uh, and slowly towards the end of our conversation. But uh, I'm very curious about one thing, because obviously you're working about archaeology um, and also the relationship with settler colonialism. But there's another form of archaeology that is very popular in Jerusalem and around Palestine, which is biblical archaeology, essentially. People, uh, scholars that are digging with the purpose to prove uh, scriptures or parts of the scriptures, passages of the Bible. Uh, and I personally believe that this is different, even though sometimes 
it too may be weaponized by uh, political parties in this case. But I, I was wondering, what is your relationship with the biblical archaeology? Well, first of all, I think that uh, biblical archaeology is either extremely popular or very unpopular, according to the kind of like personal perception of the Bible itself, uh, or someone's religious stance. Usually, that's the criteria. To be 100% fair, biblical archaeology is a very complex universe. And from the outside, it looks like this kind of like, I don't know, uh, people stuck in the last and past century trying to prove a book true like a bit of like a Schliemann trying to prove the Iliad true or something, something like that. And instead, there is like there is a universe there. There are the maximalists who believe that the Bible is true word by word. So they would try to really make the Schliemann method and read the Bible and try to find it on the ground. There are people who are the minimalists, like Danish school, the Copenhagen school, and they're doing a very strict philological job and they're super critical of everything. And they're trying to risk to basically return the Bible to its historical context, treat it as an historical text producing an historical moment and referring to historical moments, but restituting like to the full connection to the context. So it's a very complex word and it's not that 2D, it's not that flat. Uh, even though it appears flat because the funding and the advertisement goes towards the religious oriented programs, uh, things that are done like excavations that are being made and then they are being disseminated and um, tours being organized catered to very specific groups like the Christian Zionist groups or the Christian pilgrims or the like people who have religious motivations, like they want to see material traces of things they believe in. And uh, in a way, biblical archaeology is a very complex universe. Personally, uh, I am not a big fan because I believe that it's extremely politically problematic, especially in the maximalist and more uncritical ways of doing it because it's like it's the archaeology that came to palestine and it's the archaeology that came to palestine with british imperialism and with all the kind of like you know the kind of great game infiltration into the ottoman empire so uh, all the european powers competing to infiltrate their scholars slash spies slash military agents to undermine slowly the ottoman empire waiting for it to be eroded until it fell and then you know, the cake to be split. So basically, biblical archaeology wears, bears a heavy responsibility on uh, the very, like, the very undoing of the fabric of Arab Palestine, Ottoman Arab Palestine, and the creation of the Holy Land, uh, this, uh, like, the physical creation of the Holy Land in Palestine, uh, with the maps and with the changing of the names of the places into biblical names. Archaeology, biblical archaeology especially, bears a heavy responsibility. And the majority, unfortunately, of biblical archaeologists are oblivious to this because they don't want like something that they don't care about seeing is outside of their priorities. So personally, I believe that uh, if like as an archaeologist, I would be probably like if I should do biblical archaeology, I would be leaning towards the minimalists. I would be uh, I would see the biblical text as a meaningful text in a religion sense, but absolutely something that should be historicized and should be put into its context, that even the remains should be kept into the rich context, not just the biblical one. Uh, but uh, I, it's very popular because, because of reasons, because of obviously, you know, like Jerusalem and the Holy Land, exactly. But in a way, it's popular because it created its popularity. One more question about archaeology, and uh, perhaps I'm going to make you smile. 
let's go back to the uh, Indiana Jones um, sort of idea. Let's speculate. If you were to dig around Jerusalem, what would it be the major discovery that would make you feel like Indiana Jones, that you made it, you found your own uh, grail? I seriously never thought about it because believe it or not, I think I am the last standing archeologist on earth who never saw Indiana Jones. I never watched any film. So I think I am kind of like the last man standing there. <laughs> I never watched a film. So uh, I, was, I was raised on kind of like real life archeologists. Like the, those were my myths, like Carter to San Camon discovered, San Camon tomb or Schliemann, like those were my, my guys, <laughs> not, uh, not so much uh, Indiana Jones. But yeah, obviously, personally, I never thought it like that because um, I have a very weird history with archaeology, like not having been under the fascination of the films Indiana Jones and stuff. I started on very early. My first exhibition was 15 years old. And so very, like pretty early on, and it wasn't a very prosaic site. It was, um, uh, it was a warehouse that collapsed on its content and it was a middle ages warehouse. It was full of pottery and very, very early on, I realized that archeology span is a quite prosaic job made of a lot of dirt and a lot of mud and too many pieces of pottery to count. And you go to bed and you still close your eyes and you still see pieces of pottery. And that's all you're gonna see until the next day when you open your eyes and they are still in front of you. So basically, uh, I very early on, I realized that in the life of the average archeologist, the groundbreaking or the, the beautiful trinket really, really rarely happens. And it's more of an exceptional incident than average thing. Personally, uh, I don't know. I, I feel that obviously everybody's after the third, like the, the temple, the Solomonic temple. Is it really there? Like, where is it? Is it really there? And there are millions of theories, like now a multiplication of theory of where it is, even if it was even there. Like everybody's so after it that for me personally, it's lo I lost any interest in it. I just like that. I think that would be the most boring piece of information that I could get on Jerusalem because everybody's so interested in it that eventually uh, I think that its myth overrides any stone that can ever be found. And that's the issue I guess with everything around Jerusalem, like the importance of and this mystique of what we haven't found yet and what we're still looking for. It's so important that eventually finding it will be, uh, will be so disappointing and will be so prosaic that waiting for it will be more important than actually getting it. And I think that all this weight and how this weight is played and how much people are with, how far people are willing to go and different groups are willing to go to find those important things is much more intriguing and interesting and urgent and relevant than the actual finding of it. That's fascinating. Another very important passage here, yeah. question of uh, waiting for the discovery and just uh, cherish that moment. Let's move back to the question of ethnography. Um, so you spent some time uh, essentially observing uh, people in Silwan. And I was just wondering how you felt about uh, your relationship with the local people, how you also disguised yourself uh, how does it feel to be an ethnographer in the field, particularly in Jerusalem? Um, 
I think like in the beginning when I was still a master's student, it felt very uncomfortable because I was trying to go by the book. So I was a master's student. I was a diligent master's student and I was going by the book, which means that I was trying, you know, like to be fly on the wall or engage participant. I was like trying to play with all those models of ethnography and trying to find the one that worked for me. Nothing ever worked. Eventually, uh, when I... When I arrived in Silwan for my PhD research, I was still a bit in the box and I was still kind of like tentatively trying to see maybe it's me, maybe I was doing something wrong. Let's give those models a try again. And then eventually I realized that they would never work, like the, the setting would never allow them to work. Their colonial pressure is too hard. And ethnography, like anthropology, are colonial disciplines. Like you are, when you do that job, it's like when you're archaeology, like colonial disciplines, you are with the colonists, you belong to the colonists, even if you don't want it, even if you want to take a third, let's say, neutral place, or you want to take a solidarity place, like you want to take solidarity position with the population you work with, or you want to take a neutral place, it doesn't matter. Like the very things that you do, the fact that you, that you go by the rules of a colonial discipline makes you part of the colonial enterprise. And that needed to change. So eventually, uh, there is a thing that I stopped doing. I stopped observing the people of Silwan and I started observing with the people of Silwan, which is a bit more different. It's a bit different. And it took me a long time because obviously you need to build some personal relations and uh, you can't build the same kind of intense personal relationship with everyone. So you will have more superficial relations, uh, more complicated, more easier harder, uh, more natural, more forced. I, like it's, it's a very complex job. But eventually what I was trying to do with my job was to get out of the perspective of observing someone, objectifying someone doing things, and instead observing things with them. Uh, observing life from a point of view as close as possible to theirs. Uh, observing what was happening together with them, reasoning with them, listening from them. and. In a way, I eventually, I let them lead the way. I went to Silwan and people were asking me, what are you looking for? And in the beginning, I had my ideas of what I was looking for. Eventually, I had to give up. I had to tell them, I, I don't know. What do you want to tell me? And people were very confused because they are really not, like I realized that unfortunately, the trend when, uh, the trend when scholars go to Palestine, unfortunately, this is something that I was told, so it's not, uh, I, I hope nobody really feels too offended or please feel offended in the right way. So be proactive and change your ways. Is the fact that it's the very first thing that someone in Silwan told me. They told me we don't like researchers because they come, they stay for three months, they ask their questions, they know what they want to find. We, they want us to give it to them and then they disappear. Like we don't like those people, they don't listen. Like that's the first thing I was told. Like, hi, I'm a researcher. We don't like researcher here. Because they're really used to that relationship in which they have a lot of press coverage. So they have journalists, which is a different profession, completely different profession. So they want information. And uh, I had the feeling that with this kind of like super confrontational point made so early on, I had the feeling that something needed to be changed. So I tried to, I tried to let go a bit of control and on my research. And I was like, okay, Tell me what's important to you, what matters to you. And then people were, in the beginning, they were very confused because they were clearly not used to being given this kind of like, like tell me anything that matters to you. 
And then people started to talk to me about traffic. They started to talk to me about traffic tickets. They started to talk to me about, um, about tourists watching them, being uncomfortable with having tourists around their houses watching them. And uh, a lot of things that you will see like, or oh, shops closing down, the economy collapsing, the fact that the settler site takes all the economy away from them. Uh, a lot of things that do not appear immediately related to archaeology, but eventually we're all talking about what archaeology does to them. And it was just a matter of listening. Like, obviously, if any researcher goes there and wants to talk about archaeology, you're not going to get those kind of responses because people will be compelled to talk about the stones. And they don't know much. Many don't care openly. So, and on purpose, because it's felt as something like really an enemy thing, like it's an enemy planted in their own garden. So eventually, like, I realized that I couldn't have done this research if I didn't let go of control. If I went with my own research question, I would have never done this research. I would probably have come up with the same thing that everybody else is saying. And I don't know. I don't know, I really, I really, really liked sitting with them and watching with them, watching someone with them. It was, it was the most illuminating things I've, I've ever done. One last question. And I must say, unfortunately, in the last few years, I know and I'm aware of the fact that uh, for administrative reasons, you were not able to visit Jerusalem. So you're just on the other side, you're in Ramallah and you're looking at the city from the hills. What do you miss of the city? Well, I miss a lot of people that I don't have access to. I have friends whom I used to see on a daily basis. I can't see it. I see very rarely if they come this way. And uh, with Corona, it was impossible. And then now the situation is a bit complicated. Everybody tends to stay a bit put and people are not very much in the parking mood. Ramallah is a bit of a, kind of like the parking center of Palestine. So from Jerusalem, Palestinian, young people if they want to have a party they go to Ramallah generally so uh, they, just, they don't come as frequently as they used to so I generally miss the people a lot uh, I miss the ability of accessing the Haram Sharif it was one of my quiet places and I really like to be up there honestly and I really miss the chance of accessing it and being there uh, I miss I miss some some people like who I worked with for this PhD who are really my friends and uh, people who adopted me really liked it, took me in as a daughter and I really miss them. I miss talking to them. I miss like the, the simple things. I don't really miss like the research part or anything else for, for that matter. I really miss the small things like sitting down and having uh, a girls only argile or having a chat with a very old woman uh, who is like, like a grandmother and tell, have, have her tell me who's, who got married, who died, like, you know, normal business. And I don't know, I, I think I miss those things the most. And sometimes, you know, like there is a thing about Jerusalem that it's, it's in the people, it's in the energy, it's in the vibe, it's, uh, it's in a lot of things. It's in, I think I miss it sometimes. And I do have that feeling I had in the beginning, like that never changes. Like, you have this feeling of relief because you're out of a pressure cooker. Like Jerusalem is a pressure cooker. And the more you live it, the more you feel the pressure. 
and especially if you live it from East Jerusalem or from any Palestinian kind of like perspective, you feel the pressure a bit more. You feel it also on the West side. I, I lived in West Jerusalem for a while in 2012, 13, 14. I lived also in West Jerusalem. So uh, I felt the pressure over there as well. It's pressure over it, like all, all over. So I have the same feeling I had the first time I lived there. It's just like, okay, I left the pressure cooker. I can draw this kind of like sigh of relief because I'm out of the pressure cooker. But at the same time, I miss that pressure cooker. I would want to be there again. I would want to have, I would want to have the opportunity to access it and uh, accessing whatever accessing Jerusalem means because that's the issue. Like, it's not, uh, I'm not back from Jerusalem. I, um, I have a so-called Judean Samaria only visa, which means that I can be only in the territories of the West Bank. And uh, obviously, like being in Jerusalem means access to Jaffa. And it means access to Akko. It means access to the sea. It means access to a lot of things that when you have it, feels so normal. And as soon as you don't have it anymore, it feels so precious. And Jerusalem itself, regardless of how complicated it is and how uh, oppressive it can be sometimes and how lonely it can get sometimes, uh, regardless of all of that, I think that not having it makes it even more valuable and even more precious. This was Silvia Truini, ethnographer and archaeologist, and indeed her cat. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to Jerusalem Unplugged. This podcast is currently commercial free. There are no ads. The only possibility to stay this way is for you to please let your friends, your family, and others who may be interested in listening to Jerusalem Unplugged know about this podcast. Let's increase the audience and let's keep the podcast commercial free. Thank you for listening. Until the next one.